It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, episode 22, with host Elliot Gould, originally aired on May 29, 1976. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to SNL. My name is Keith. With me, as always, is Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. Happy to be here. And joining us is Chili. Hello, Chili. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good. Now, I'm, I'm eager to hear how you like this one because uh, you've had a couple of duds uh, in your previous two visits. There was no moments in great moments in history. There was no racist Indian accents. <laughs> so far, so good. So, Matt, you really enjoyed our last uh, Elliot Gould appearance, yep. which was episode nine back in January of 76. Were you excited to see Elliot again this time? I was. I was looking forward to it. Very nice. And I certainly hope he doesn't disappoint. The, let's jump right into the show. We have Elliot Gould. We've also got Leon Redbone coming back. And uh, Leon was with us on the Jill Clayberg episode. We've also got uh, Harlan Collins and uh, Joyce Everson. So just a little bio here. We have Elliot Gould. He's back. As I said, he last appeared in January 76. Since then, he's worked on two films. One of them called I Will, I Will for Now with Diane Keaton. And another one called Harry and Walter Go to New York. That's also with Diane Keaton, but also Michael Caine and James Caan. And that one was due to be released in June. Not only have I not seen them, I've never heard of either, which is kind of strange. You'd, you'd think an Elliot Gould, Diane Keaton, James Caan, Michael Caine deal would be something uh, that would have come up in a conversation at some point. You would think so, but no matter how big a star you are at the time, there's always some movies that slip through the cracks, right? Yeah, absolutely, for sure, yeah. Even look at the stars of today. If you look at some of their IMDb's and catch some posters, you're like, holy shit. Really yeah. Like, what is this? <laughs> Just a little show note about this one. It means absolutely nothing to me, but I know a lot of uh, folks my age will possibly perk up at this one. This show was actually aired the same week that uh, the movie Dazed and Confused is set. So that could, in theory, like uh, during that movie, this episode would have been on, is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, let's get to the show. So Chevy Chase comes out in a trench coat, and there's some wax dummies on the stage including Joan of Arc, Lorraine Newman, Louis XVI, and Mary Antoinette. It's Neil Levy and Jane Curtin. And who I think might be Mae West, and that's Gilda Radner. Um, so he gets, uh, Chevy gets awkwardly close to Joan. Um, he flashes Louis and Marie. And then he tries to nuzzle in with West, but West slaps him. He slaps her back. She slaps him again, knocks him off the stage, and it's live from New York. This was, for me, it was a, a fresh take on the beginning. This one was kind of a character bit instead of just Chevy coming out as himself. It was a nice change for me. The what little detail ruined the whole thing for me. So he's wearing, he was just really obviously wearing jeans. So he's not exposing anybody. Like, put a pair of shorts on. Wear boxers. I couldn't stop looking at the denim sticking out from the bottom of the trench coat. And it just killed it for me. It was nice to see something different. The two episodes I saw with you guys that I reviewed on, it was very similar. Chevy doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to do it. And I was, I'm glad to see it wasn't just that same trend continuing on. Was it funny? Not particularly, but it was something different and a new take on it. So I'll give it a thumbs up. So we go to the uh, monologue. It's Elliot Gould. He came out before sort of looking homeless, giant mustache, smoking a cigarette. This time he's cleaned up a little bit, no more mustache, and he's eating a banana that he gives to an audience member. And he's wearing a t-shirt that says EG's Army. So he looks 
less homeless and more like a gym teacher trying to look cool while chaperoning a dance. He then sings Anything Goes, uh, does a nice little tap dance sort of thing. All I could think of watching this was, what a cool dude. I, I think this generation, myself included, just doesn't understand how cool of a guy uh, Elliot Gould was at the time. I thought this was great. I really enjoyed this. Quick, to the point, and a bit of a tie back to the original monologue you did in episode nine. Yeah, I was uh, I wasn't really sure what to make of this. I do agree. It was something where you can kind of tell, like, when he first walked out, I think his look was so almost like the years have kind of ruined it. Because nowadays, if I saw somebody walking down the street dressed like that, I'd be like, oh, look at this pretentious prick. But knowing back that, you know, this is 40 some years ago now, you do kind of get the impression like, you know what, this when he was doing it, it was cool. Uh, He was confident, unlike um, some of the other past hosts who opened with the musical bit. This one actually felt like it was it served a purpose. I wouldn't give it the best thing I've ever seen, but I enjoyed it. I didn't like it. There is too much music this episode uh and this is the start of an alarming trend this this is uh this is a bad omen for me i don't like this vibe uh i don't like musical monologues that's more of a personal taste thing there's nothing wrong with it he has a nice smooth voice i could see paul schaefer as soon as he walked out i knew it was coming i steeled myself against it and it was fine these these uh the, the ditties don't do anything for me like how much of this do you think boils down to being the first season of SNL that these guests may have come on and said, Hey, people, you know, someone like an Elliot Gould, like, you know, people know me as an actor. They don't know I can sing. I want to sing in my monologue. Is that something? Cause like, you don't see a whole lot of that these days. Not that I watch a ton of current SNL, but I wonder how much of it is the fact that they're just trying to show this is something else they can do. Well, so much of today, too, the actors can't sing and dance. I mean, that's just, they can barely act. You, know? <laughs> you had to have extra talents in days gone by, you know. There, there's probably an element of that. But absolutely, I think a lot of them show up and say, I want to do something completely different from what I'm known for. And if they can carry a tune in a bucket at all, they, they give them that opportunity, which I think is cool. It doesn't always work, obviously. but uh, But this one I liked. Um, I also had this twisted, funny version of like Elliot Gould standing in a 70s mall kiosk waiting for that shirt to be finished getting ironed <laughs> on. A more, I mean, I was going to say a more recent version of this I could think of is my recent goes back to, I think it was like 2001 or something, but the first episode where The Rock hosted. Yeah. They had a bit where he started singing Elvis songs. And I remember like the, you know, whatever consisted of the internet at the time going kind of crazy. Like, oh, this guy can actually kind of like sing. And he actually is. Te-. So I think that was an example where it worked out for the person doing it. I don't know if it necessarily worked out for everyone who tries it. But I mean, you know what? If it's a chance to showcase your skills to a different audience, why not go for it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So before we go in, any mention of uh, Elliot Gould's wedding to Gilda Radner in uh, episode nine? Not mentioned at all tonight. They were married at the end of the episode. So I guess that's been dropped. That I thought he looked terrible. I thought his outfit was atrocious and it looked like he had gained some weight and I didn't think it looked really good on him. I, I didn't think I thought he was unsightly. He didn't look like a, the sex symbol that I sometimes heard of like Elliot Gould referred to as at the time. He looked more of like a guy who would be doing like Seth Rogen type roles as opposed to the more poster boy leading man type stuff. A little pudgy. He could have been uh, David Berkowitz if we've got Chevy playing Ted Bundy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then we go to a commercial that was re-aired. I don't believe you've, you, you definitely weren't with us for the episode, Chili. It was the Academy of Better Careers, 
where you could train to be a telephone operator, which is an operator that stands by during a uh, like an old KTEL type uh, mail order slash phone order thing. So uh, yeah, this was uh, this was a fun commercial from episode one. Hadn't seen it in a while. So what were your impressions on this commercial, Chili? I know Matt and I have seen it. Matt, I don't know if you've softened on it at all. I didn't find it funny at all. Like I almost wondered if it was one of those paid advertisements they had in the first season. I didn't feel like the audience found it funny either. I'm not sure how it would have worked if it was the live audience watching that review, uh, the replay. It didn't seem like the audience found it that funny either. So for me, this is a, it was a bit of a bust. I don't remember what my comments were when I first saw it, of course. But at this juncture, it sure didn't do a heck of a lot for me. Yeah, I think it got a kind of a universal meh from you and I and D at the time. Our uh, first sketch of the night. Dan Aykroyd plays a high-end New Orleans gambler named Mr. Russo. And Garrett is his um, friend and manservant, Johnny Sackpants. And they're being visited by uh, Chevy as Ramon Diagro and uh, Elliot Gould as Mo Greenstein or Greenstein, his interpreter. Chevy is a European poker player, allegedly. So they're meant to play poker. And Dan does this Southern gentleman stuff, welcoming, welcoming Chevy from the fine, fine nation of Europe. Uh, Chevy pretends not to know how to play American rules and he looks at cards and he cheats and stuff like that. And Dan lets him get away with it. Basically, Dan is willing to lose the match in order to maintain his Southern hospitality. On the way out, Chevy steals candlesticks. So this sketch is basically Chevy speaking gibberish. Dan Aykroyd is effective, but I actually kind of found him a little annoying. Gould and Garrett were pretty good in this, but there wasn't enough Gould and Garrett. Points for the uh, Mo Greenstein. Throw a uh, shout out to the uh, shout out to the uh, Godfather. I didn't particularly like. It had potential, but uh, Chevy's gibberish was just not good. Like some people are really good at doing a fake language. I think he was basing the name probably supposed to be like Spanish or something like that, and it was just gobbledygook. Not a good fake language. There were certain bits of it that were funny. Like I, I did laugh at the fine nation of Europe. The audience didn't. I don't know if that was something that uh, they didn't quite catch on to. Uh, Garrett's line about, you know, they're bust, he's busting your chops. That got a good laugh. The host, Elliot Gould, had nothing really to do here. Ackroyd's bit, constantly mentioning, mentioning honor, kind of got a little bit old, even though it was necessary. I don't know. There were things of this that were good, but overall, a bit of a bit of a long bust you guys we're at oddsies this episode i thought this was hilarious i was i wasn't really warmed up to it right away uh when they first came in and uh, i thought the nation of europe was kind of funny and then i kind of thought it made sense that his accent was gibberish because they just said he was from europe but i you know i told i agree that chevy's probably lazy and he didn't give a shit whatever that's just speculation on my part but dan excuse me dan really got me when he kept going on and on and no matter how much shitty stuff was happening to him, he, he just, and his affectations became just more and more dramatic for his honor. Well, I can't, I certainly can't lose my gallantry and my honor. And there was so cling on of him. And it was, I, I, I just loved how he escalated it. I thought it was really good acting from him. And I, I laughed a lot. Odsies. I do kind of agree in a way, Matt. I think this could have been, this is a sketch I probably needed one or two more weeks in the writer's room to iron out some of the things, but there was definitely good stuff in it. Just could have been a few uh, wrinkles ironed out, I guess. Chevy was good in it too. I, can't, I guess when I first started, Dan really took over the end, but when Chevy was at first, he just leaned over and looked at his cards. He's like, oh, you don't play Dealer's Peak? 
It's like, oh, <laughs> of course, dealers speak. I've never heard of that. I thought it was great. I, I, I find I'm getting more and more picky over the first sketch of the night. To me, that's the one that they said, okay, this is the best we've got. So I don't know if I, I, I definitely think I graded on a, on a higher curve. It's like the, you know, the Gary Weiss film I'm, I'm rather picky on because so many of them were so great. It's, it's, it's weird, but this one didn't do it for me. I don't know why. For me, it's probably not a good sign in an SNL sketch when at the end, my biggest takeaway is I really liked the costumes. Costumes look great. I kind of wish mm. I had heavy suit. <laughs> yeah. Costumes and set do get points on this one for sure. So then we have a, a Chiron, and it says, why are we to judge this person? No, I liked it. I found that funny. Our next bit is a ad for the National Uvula Association. And this is a complete rehash rewriting of the National Pancreas Association ad from earlier in the year. It's the exact same jokes with a slightly different setup. Uh, and it's Chevy playing a doctor instead of Aykroyd. I don't know why they would redo this. I mean, it's the same jokes except it's uvula instead of pancreas maybe in many ways this one's like better than the other one but i can't figure out why they'd redo this and this one has uh gilda playing babs lorraine newman playing her sister sis and chevy playing a doctor and this one ends with don pardo answering a who's there from a knock knock joke but yeah this was kind of mind-boggling as they just didn't re-air the pancreas one yeah, it was dumb. And the, I mean, it was just somebody thought Uvula was funny uh, to say, or maybe wanted to hear Don Pardo say it. It was, it was, I thought it was a waste of time. And it was weird. And I'm not sure what the justification would have been. I mean, I sure didn't enjoy it. Now, I didn't watch the previous one. So I thought this was okay. I did enjoy the knock knock joke knock knock, who's there? Babs is Uvula. Babs Uvula, who? I don't know, Babs, but I do know this. Uh-huh. For me, that got a good laugh out loud. I like the delivery of it. Something about this episode, Chevy Chase. He just doesn't seem to be on, even doing this sketch and things later on. It's, I don't know, it's just a bit of an off night for him. But I overall enjoyed this, but I also didn't see the previous one. So that could explain it. I also wanted, once I heard this, once I, uh, I saw it was Uvula, I thought, I really thought that when Chevy came in, I said, okay, this is going to be a deep throat thing. And then yeah. never went there. So I think I had, I had some dashed expectations as well. <laughs> Yeah, I was expecting a lot of creepiness to this that just never came, which is funny because the show gets creepy in other parts and you're not expecting it. And then this year it's like, oh, uvula, back of the throat, here we go. And then it's like, yeah, that's pretty tame. There's nothing to it. Probably not a hell of a lot different from an actual ad if there was a National Uvula Association. I just Googled because you asked, Keith, I can't find anything specific to uvulas in the 1970s that would have made them decide, let's redo that, but with uvulas instead. (laughs) Funny word, I guess. So our first musical interlude, Leon Redbone. Now, this is technically his first bit as the musical guest instead of the special musical presentation. I credited him as musical guest on on our Jill Clayburgh episode. So it's only been a few weeks since he's been here, but he's back. He sings Harvest Moon, written by Nora Bates or Nora Bays and Jack Norworth from 1909. To me, this is Leon's like his masterpiece. Um, I love how he looked. I love the song. I love the performance. It was really cool. There was a lighting effect where he almost looked invisible for the bulk of the first verse. And uh, something I heard about Leon Redbone years ago is somebody said, even when he's playing live, you can hear the vinyl scratches, um, which I totally picked up on this one. (laughs) I I, I adored this. I absolutely loved it. And uh, this is high for me. This is really great stuff. It's a song I grew up on. 
listening to a loss, not necessarily his version either. It's almost more the Laurel and Hardy uh, joke from way back in the day. But I even say like, even for this, knowing, I mean, I listened to Leon Redbone for the last several weeks after the last episode I did that he was on. And even if you don't like, even if you can't sit down and listen to it, or if you don't like his voice, I find you still... It'd be hard not to be impressed by the sound that comes out of him. Like, uh, even for me, like, knowing how he sounds, once he started singing, I was like, shit, he actually has, like, a powerful voice, too. It's not just mumbling, which is what you'd expect. So, yeah, no, for me, this is a, I, I like this a lot. It's very unique, very fun, very good. I also think it was quite unique, and I think uh, that while it may not be necessarily my cup of tea musically, uh, it was certainly a fantastic presentation, great voice, loved listening to it. Uh, loved the performance. It's not something I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to listen to it a lot going forward. That's fine. You don't have to listen to everything going forward just because you saw it on the show. But did you enjoy the performance? Yes. Great in the context of the show. Very good musical guest and uh, great visuals, which added to a real cool factor. I'm so glad you enjoyed it, Matt. I have like several notes defending this music. <laughs> music <laughs> piece that we can now skip. <laughs> Um, our next sketch is uh, one of the ones that are kind of a highlight sketch for a lot of people. It's called The Last Voyage of the Starship Enterprise. And this was written by Michael O'Donohue. And it features Chevy as Spock, Belushi as Kirk. Uh, Uhura and uh, Sulu are played by production members. Uh, Uhura is Doris Powell, producer. And Sulu is Akira Yoshimura. I think they called him Leo. He was a set designer. Probably, uh, probably designed or built that set actually we have Ackroyd in dual roles as scotty's voice and mccoy so the starship enterprise it's set up like a regular episode of star trek and they're being followed by a 1976 chev impala owned by nbc and there's some jokes about cookies which i had to look up and i guess nabisco was originally also called nbc so uh gould and morris enter as herb goodman and a technician named curtis and they're there to cancel star trek i'm not going to say i'm not going to say too much else about the plot of this one this was a really nice blend of comedians playing actors in a set this is what i thought was kind of meta done well in a way i thought this was great stuff with the cameras a lot of work went into production and one thing, this is like an early parody of Star Trek, which I, you know, the, the vibe I get is that this sketch kind of set the tone for Star Trek parodies. There's, uh, I don't remember which one, but one of the people that do Shatner said they started doing Shatner initially imitating Belushi's Shatner and then uh, took it from there. Yeah, a lot of the uh, first Star Trek jokes were pointed out here. I wouldn't put this in the upper echelon of sketches, but my God, it was memorable and it sure was a lot of fun. Matt, you're a big Star Trek fan. Big Star Trek fan and thought it was really cool to see this. I'd never seen it uh, because this is, of course, before Star Trek, the motion picture. So uh, Star Trek in 1976, still very much just a thing of syndication and cult status. I believe the cartoon has come along by now, but I'd have to double check my date. That might be next year. I thought everybody was really good. Chevy Chase was awesome as Spock. He did a great Spock voice. Belushi, fantastic. As Captain Kirk appreciated the culturally appropriate Uhura and Sulu. Uh, Dan Aykroyd, very good Scotty on the intercom. What a terrible McCoy, though. The first time I've ever seen Dan Aykroyd not pull something like this off. A really bad McCoy. Um, but otherwise, I thought I thought the whole thing was funny. I thought Elliot Gould was funny in the, the, the whole breakdown when they came in and take down the show. Did it go on too long? Yeah, probably. But being a big Star Trek guy, I, I guess I, I cared less. Thought it was great. Loved it. 
I always find it very hard to gauge the popularity of the original Star Trek. Because when I first started watching this, I kind of thought, like, wasn't the show canceled nine years before this parody even went on? And then you start learning about, oh, picked up in the syndication and the cult status. So I think knowing this, like you said, Keith, is probably one of the earlier Star Trek parodies. I definitely give it a lot more of a pass. Like Chevy was great as Spock. I'm not the biggest Belushi fan. Uh, but at first I kind of thought, it's not a great Shatner. But it might also be one of the earlier one of the earlier Shatner parodies, and it was a lot more grounded than you would expect than what you see nowadays, where anyone who does Shatner is so over the top with it. He was probably more of an actual parody of nineteen sixty something William Shatner compared to nowadays. We get everybody doing the nineteen eighties, like when Shatner became a parody of himself. You kind of parody that. Same thing. I'm very happy to see Sulu and Uhura were actually played by people who should be playing Sulu and Uhura. Yeah, just a little note for what you said there for the guy who played Sulu. He actually still works for SNL to this day, apparently. Yeah, he's made recent appearances. Yeah, yeah. Still so, there. yeah, no, I I think this is a I think it's a pretty cool sketch. Speaking to the diversity side of things, too, it is kind of strange that after a sketch like this, where they bring in two people who are essentially set designers it took them five years to actually hire an african-american woman to work on the show and it was 15 before they had somebody who lasted more than one season and it was 45 years before they hired an asian person to be a cast member on the show so looking back in the first season it must have crossed their mind at some point like maybe we should have a bit more diversity on the show and it just almost surprising how long it took but that's not to bring down the quality of the the sketch which was very good they were part of the, they weren't just set pieces. You know what I mean? Like Sulu and Uhura headlines. I think there was some thought put there, which made it a lot better than if they had just thrown a, a yellow shirt on Garrett or something like that, you know? Live crowd loved it. They were whooping it up when their favorite characters came on. Star Trek fever was coming in. Yeah, imagine a world where an impression of Scotty over an intercom gets a huge ovation. <laughs> 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 and uh, they they make reference to a margarine a margarine commercial uh, for Captain Kirk that he's going to be doing, and I recommend checking that out. It's a William Shatner advertisement for Promise Margarine, and it's on YouTube. My God, it's weird. Um, but yeah, no big ups for me on this one. Yeah, Gilda comes out. She announces the Muppets are vacationing in England, to where they trace their ancestry to a felt factory. Funny, I, uh, I I don't particularly like the Muppets, but I don't mind Gilda talking about the Muppets. So, yeah, nice little interlude. It was the best Muppet sketch so far this season. <laughs> Stay gone. It, it actually had a joke. I laughed at the Felt Factory thing. It's the first Muppet joke I laughed at all season. It's funny you say that, but if if one of the Muppets had said that, I, I don't think it would have been funny. Yeah, it's almost like they dragged down the show when they're on it. So we're now over to Weekend Update. So Chevy is on the phone and he says, everybody makes noises. So what if you happen to laugh? And then he says, I'm Chevy Chase and so are you. Just a few high high points for me on this one. Fidel Castro has announced that uh, Cuba is pulling out of Angola. A frustrated Angola cannot be reached for comment. He's got a big laugh. Got one for me. Rosalind and Jimmy Carter had their faces epoxied together. And then we get a breast, uh, a, a naked boob on television in 1976. Chevy is just not quick enough to cover it. And the boob belongs to a lady named Elizabeth Ray, who was hired by a government official, Wayne Hayes, despite having no credentials. She couldn't type or answer phones. That was a, a huge sex scandal at the time. And it all came to light when uh, Ms. Ray got pissed off that uh, Mr. Hayes was marrying another secretary. 
Uh, she was fine with the marriage, but she was pissed that she didn't get invited to the wedding. And yes, that breast went out on a live feed, was cut out of syndication and reruns, and even the West Coast feed, I believe. But it's been restored <laughs> nowadays. So there's uh, so much cheating at the at West Point that they're going to change the rules. Bobby Orr, they show the famous clip of uh, Boston Bruins, uh, Bobby Orr jumping in the air after he scored the goal. This is quitting hockey to become a diver. And a Klansman is introduced to Spiro Agnew. How was the first part of update for you, gents? I thought this was one of the best updates in a while, not just because of the boob either. Yeah, it went, it went pretty well for me. This is uh, above average. You know, I, I've been pretty hard on weekend update lately. This first, the first block here, uh, it moved at a good pace. I didn't love all the jokes, but I never love all the jokes. But yeah, there, there, I certainly had nothing to complain about. That was pretty good. I found it wasn't as topical as some of the weekend updates I've uh, checked in on, which made it a bit easier. I did find it weird, though, because when they showed the picture of Bobby Orr, I thought, oh, that must have been when the picture was taken that week. But that Bobby Orr photo was taken after I looked it up in like 1970. So it does seem like a very odd reference to just throw in there. But otherwise, you know, nothing to write home about. But overall, Pretty good. All right. So then we go to a commercial. It's for the Vibromatic, and it features Dan as his uh, KTEL-style pitchman. And the Vibromatic is a uh, something that can be used as a KitchenAid and a personal massager. So Elliot Gould makes a sandwich with it, and uh, Lorraine Newman is using it on her face. Uh, Aykroyd has a rough time cutting a potato and says, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I think we're supposed to infer here that this is not used to uh, vibrate a woman's face, but uh, this was fine as a, as a midweekend update commercial. I liked it. It's uh, yeah, really, a little bit of scan, a little scandalous, but nothing too bad because it was covered up well. And yeah, Aykroyd having trouble cutting the potato <laughs> was definitely a highlight. I thought it was pretty funny. My, my favorite part uh, or the part I was like, Oh my, was uh, when Lorraine was licking her lips while using the <laughs> it's it's funny like the thought that okay you know they write this and they they disguise it slightly to get past the censors but instantly the audience is hip to the scene and knows what they're talking about it makes me think that the censors weren't as necessarily as um buttoned down as they might have thought or they were just the most gullible people in the world or they were so buttoned down they didn't understand the joke of it. You know, the whole uh, implication that, you know, this is clearly meant to be a vibrator was so poorly hidden <laughs> that it's shocking that it got through the way it did. Yeah, I wonder if like this is one they might not even be able to get. They might have to fight to get on the air this, you know, this day and age. I just pictured the sensors back then being so stuffy from, you know, the, the haze code or something like that. They maybe didn't have a <laughs> single clue what this was referring to. They just thought. Oh, that's funny. You can use it to cut vegetables too, recognizing what Lorraine was putting down. I think the big difference nowadays, and, and, and I don't want to get into this too much, but in the olden days, censorship came from the right side of the spectrum politically. Um, nowadays it's coming from both sides. So it's, it's, it's probably harder to get a lot of stuff on, I would think. So, uh, we go back to weekend update and, uh, Muhammad Ali knocked out a six year old girl in Ohio. And there's a picture of Ali with a little girl. Um, and Montreal is prepping for the Olympics. Chevy does another one of Matt's favorite voiceovers. This time he's as Jacqueline Carlin, which is the name of his wife. They got married in February and she's been on the show a few times. And it's old video of people doing like calisthenics in a gym. They're running up to a bench, the medicine ball thing. And they're doing a duck pin pull. Uh, Chili, do you remember playing that game when we were young at Cubs? My note for this is how I used to love dance around the duck pins. Yeah. And 
not to brag, but I, I think I might be undefeated at it. I will challenge any grown man to a competition of dance around the duck pins anytime, any place. I'm I'm definitely not undefeated, but I have a great record at it as well. So uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to play pins one of these days. If you ever get a Patreon account, that'll be the first thing. If you <laughs> <laughs> anyone who wants to pay extra money can watch the three of us do uh, dance around the duck pins. <laughs> the duck pins. It'd be a great thing to get all the guest hosts together and play. <laughs> I actually thought that was invented by our cub leader. <laughs> Have you ever played pins, Matt? That game they were doing? Were no, I don't think so. Oh, gosh. So much fun. It's as injury-laden as a Red Rover. Oh, yeah. You'd, bru- you'd bruise a shin. Our next bit is Jane Curtin as Audrey Pert Dickman, and that's a name of one of the associate producers of the show or assistant to the producers. She's in favor of using patriotism for commercial purposes. And this is just another one of them stupid things where Chevy's sitting there making faces behind her back. I, I don't like these, never like these. They're they're not a hit on the, this, this podcast at all. Jane was good, but that was dumb. And then we go to, for those of us who are Emily Latella fans, Emily Latella will repeat the story and Emily repeats it all wrong. She again calls Chevy uh, Cheddar. And when Chevy says goodnight and have a pleasant tomorrow, she says, well, good morning, how are you? This is a quick use of Emily. They've painted themselves in the corner with Emily. And this was a quick use and it was actually a nice change. It was kind of funny. So how did the second half go for you fellas? The second half wiped its ass with the first half. It was so bad. They front loaded the whole thing. When Chevy does the voice, it's so stupid. I wish they'd stop doing it. The fucking gag with it. I was so excited when I saw Jane come up and think, oh, good. She's going to get to do something on Weekend Update. Uh, maybe she can be a, like a fun correspondent or something. No, it's just fucking Chevy mugging around. Uh, I hated the second half. It's all that's wrong with Weekend Update. Stupid. Yeah, I agree 100%. I thought the second half sucked. I guess a bit of a chuckle about the duck pins or the pins thing, but we've already gone over that. Otherwise, it was same thing as what Matt said. I I don't know if it's just the episodes I'm watching with you guys, but Jane Curtin has so, had so little to do to see her show up. It's like, oh, great. She's going to do something. She's going to get a chance to do something. And then it just ended up being almost as if the writers – like Chevy was representing the writers for the episodes I've seen that she's been in where it's like, we'll kind of give you something to do, but we'll also be kind of like mocking it and upstaging at the same time. It kind of goes towards what I said earlier too, where there's just something about, I've been pretty big on Chevy. The last few episodes I've watched this one, he just, he just annoyed the fuck out of me all episode and this did not help. So yeah, no big thumbs down in the second half and it really dragged down the whole segment for me. Jane's really come into her own and it's not unappreciated. I don't think by the audience, but underappreciated by the friggin' writers or the, the other actors or something. She's doing great and she's not getting her due. I don't think. Was she known to be like difficult to work with or something? No, it's no, quite the opposite. She was known to be quite professional. She didn't play the social game. It was a job. She went home at the end of the day to her husband and her dog. Um, That's a big thing though. Really- you don't play that social game you don't rub those elbows, then maybe somebody, you know, all of a sudden, not as many people are writing shit for you. Very Uh much what happened to Garrett as well, um, in many ways. Garrett had some other issues, but uh, but with Jane, it was very much, uh, yeah, she went, showed up for work. She she didn't go, she, I don't think she went on writer, Writer's Day. Everybody seemed to like her and, and respect her. There's no dirt on Jane Curtin for, other than maybe what was seen as is mildly aloof and maybe the lecherous comments i've made via the podcast <laughs> <laughs> well lily tomlin said that she she always had it together you know 
And uh, there's something to be said for that. I mean, we, we, we do, you know, you do sort of look back and say it would have been good to be there to be partying and four o'clock in the morning, writer sessions fueled by, you know, whatever you could buy on the street and, you know, just the general dropping of trowel constantly. And, <laughs> but there's something to be said for someone who shows up, you know, in 1976 in an artistic field, shows up, does their job, goes home, you know. And has uh, has Ovaltine with her husband and, and, and watches Dallas or you no know, Dallas wasn't on, I don't think, watches whatever and goes to sleep and is up at eight o'clock the next morning. <laughs> I wonder, too, if it has something to do with the two episodes that I've gone on with you guys have both been hosted by, you know, attractive at the time, blonde women, too. And that was sort of the role that I think she was probably hired on to capitalize on. Right. Like she would have played those parts. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, I mean, Elliot Gould obviously is not going to be a competitor for us. So she had a little bit more to do this episode. So our next sketch, we go to Ghana and it's uh, Garrett Morris playing uh, Mubutu and he's with his assistant, Thalmus. And I couldn't find who played this person. Um, there are two actors credited at the end of the episode. Elliot Gould plays uh, uh, Mr. Hinch is the name I have here. And this is sort of a international dispute that has to be solved by legitimate Ghana ambassador, Shirley Temple Black. So Lorraine comes in as Shirley Temple, uh, who, <laughs> but it's like four-year-old uh, Shirley Temple. And she tries to get everybody to sing and dance together. The highlight for me was when the Morse code, the, the telegraph machine busted. They all start tap dancing out Morse code. So she brings everything together. Um, about a month later, Shirley Temple would be removed from the post of Ambassador to Ghana in real life. But uh, I, I enjoyed this. It wasn't great, but it, I don't know. It just showed a little bit of extra talent there. Uh, you know, Garrett and Elliot and Lorraine are all good singers and good dancers. The one thing that kind of annoyed me, well, there's two two elements about this sketch that kind of bugged me. The first bit was really sloppy. It seemed like lines were getting dropped or, or camera cues were off or something. Um, and then uh, the tap shoes. Uh, I could hear the tap shoes the whole time that Lorraine was on screen. And it, it, I found it a little annoying, but, and I knew there was going to be some tap dancing coming. So whatever on that one, but uh, this is not bad. Yeah, I thought it was lots of fun. I, uh, I really dug Lorraine's performance. I thought she was fantastic. Really impressed me. Uh, it wasn't, a, you know, there's too much music this episode, whatever. But I thought I was really impressed by the dancing. It kind of, I was quite unexpected. Nothing overstayed its uh, welcome. And uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was, it didn't light my fire. I was into it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um, I, I was nervous at the very beginning because uh, the episodes I've watched so far have all had some you know, fairly questionable accents done by white performers. Uh, this was, I had my head down when they first started this one. I started hearing the accents. I was like, oh, fuck, who's this going to, I looked up, I was like, okay, good. It's, you know, the people who are doing the accents are the people who should be, you know, doing the accents, playing those roles. Once the whole thing with Shirley Temple came on, it was an easy joke, but Lorraine was so likable in it. Uh, I enjoyed this a lot. I thought that she was fantastic. The dancing at the end was a lot of fun. Overall, I found this was a good sketch it had a beginning a middle a nice little surprising musical dance bit towards the end and it ended so yeah this is a big plus for me i liked it and we have a chiron to someone who has won runner-up at a don pardo lookalike contest and this guy kind of looks like a slightly red-haired gene shallot um this one actually got a rare chiron laugh from me 
We then go to Gary Weiss, uh, Gary Weiss film, and it's introduced by Elliot Gould. And we uh, we go to uh, Uncle Charlie Lowe's school. It's a school in New York that teaches kids how to taught kids how to dance, sing, and uh, helps with their diction. Uncle Charlie is this eighty-seven uh, year old man sitting there teaching young children how to sing Al Jolson, uh, Eddie Cantor songs. He has one girl doing a Carmen Miranda impression, and then at the end, Elliot Gould shows up. And Elliot Gould was a former student of Charlie Lowe's. He showed up. Uh, Elliot Gould started studying with Mr. Lowe when he was nine. 1976, seeing children do impressions of people who had been out of the limelight for 50 years. I, I loved this. I it, This was hilarious. Just this old dude sitting in a chair getting five-year-olds to, to sing like Al Jolson. I was in stitches this whole time. I, I really like this movie, and I have a feeling I'm going to be the only one. Well, I have to say you are not the only one <laughs> I found. Uh, I actually found this quite funny, too. A lot of very famous people went through there, including Elliot Gould. It wasn't my favorite of uh, his movies by any means. I thought it was cute. I think uh, I, I maybe didn't like it as much because it was just, I don't know. I, I like when something about him looking at the seedier side of the city is kind of what I look forward to with his movies. I shouldn't even say the seedier side, just a different side. Anyway, this wasn't the environment where I think his particular work shines the most it was it was funny i i would also enjoy it in some sort of modern revamping of little children doing songs from christopher cross or somebody they didn't know i don't know christopher cross is a bad example maybe andy gibb but i digress so the three of us are fathers we all have children um i just imagine like you know one of my daughters saying i want to take singing lessons and showing up to uh to learn Frozen. She shows up and the instructor has her singing the Moody Blues and, and, and doing, you know, Saturday Night Fever dancing, you know? <laughs> I, I wonder, though, because, like, you know, back, you know, when we were kids taking theater lessons and all that, like, we were getting old ragtimey shit, too. So I wonder if it's just that's the best generation for kids to learn how to do theatrical performance because you're not going to have them in there doing you know hair or anything yeah. too controversial from the 70s or 80s even you know what's safer for your kid to do like jesus <laughs> christ superstar or yankee doodle Day, <laughs> yankee doodle day i don't know <laughs> the, thing that, the vibe i got was at no point do you i mean i'm sure this man was a great teacher but at no point do you see him teaching it's just he sits there and he points at a kid and goes all right, you give me some Eddie Cantor and you, you uh, I want some Glenn Miller from you and, and uh, you know, I'm a Mario Speedwagon kid. You know? I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, probably not the intent they had, but this this was a kick. This was hilarious to me. It really was funny. Another good Chiron. Uh, somebody, uh, picture, I think it's a woman and it says, uh, no one knows personally. That really threw me off. I like that one. Yeah, the Chirons were good this this week. Yeah, and I don't don't usually like them. So uh, next up is the bees present honeymooners, and we get to see our bees again. I have no reason to think this, but for some reason, I I I I think this might have been a Rosie Schuster writing. I, I don't know who wrote it, but it seems Rosie Schuster ish. And this one is done in black and white, and it has the old film scratches and such. Big 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 ups for the. Uh, almost identical replication of the old honeymooners apartment. Trixie played by Jane Curtin comes in and says that uh, <laughs> Ed came home drunk last night and talked about his old girlfriends. Gilda is Alice and she's nauseous. 
And then Belushi comes in as Ralph Cramden. He sits on needles, does an over-exaggerated cell job, but not much more over-exaggerated than uh, Gleason himself would have done. Norton comes in. It's Dan Aykroyd. And he figures out uh, that because Alice is sick, she's uh, she's expecting a drone. We find out that the drone is not Ralph's. It's Ed's. Like his Shatner, Belushi's impression, it's not great, but you know exactly who he's doing. Aykroyd's Ed Norton is awesome. Great impression, but it's not a particularly hard one to do. This was okay. This was not bad. It was fun. It was it was funny, but it was uh, maybe two classic TV shows in one episode was a bit much. I don't know. It, it didn't hit me as well as it probably would have on perhaps another episode. I'm inclined to agree with that, and especially because, I, I mean, I didn't, uh, I thought it was fine. I liked Belushi's impression, but uh, the big thing for me is... I was not familiar with this show. Uh, Star Trek, I know inside out. This, I have only, I've never seen a full episode of that show. I've seen, you know, a couple of clips and some parodies. When you do something like that, you know, um, a portion of the audience gets lost. Were they lost then? Well, probably not nearly as much as me now. I would almost, you know, if you asked me to rate this sketch with a number, I'd abstain from voting. It sure didn't make me laugh, but I'm, I don't know the source material. Yeah, it was a well-done parody. I like the line at the beginning when they're talking about Ed's first girlfriend being a fly, and I think they said something like, well, flies are normally so reserved, and they said, yeah, well, Ed's fly was open. I got a good shot with that one. Belushi's Gleason was okay, but it's a similar note I had before about, I forget, it was for his Jack Nicholson impression from a couple episodes ago. I mean, like these are impressions that even Shatner earlier on, and I said that, you know, obviously the Shatner one is an early Shatner impression. Not a lot of people assume were doing it at the time, but these are three impressions that are maybe not so much Gleason nowadays, but like everyone does Shatner, everyone does Jack Nicholson. You know, a lot of people, especially back in the day, would do Jackie Gleason. And Belushi's kind of hitting 0 for 3 on three of the easiest impressions that everybody does. But, I don't know, the audience seemed to like it a bit more than I did. Uh, Mm. Gilda was great as Alice, and Dan Aykroyd's Ed was fantastic. I think the big problem I have with this, which I noticed with a lot of these sketches, is there was no real ending to it. It's like, well, it's not yours, it's Ed's. And then that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. The production design was really good. It did look like the Honeymooners. I liked the black and white touch to it. So there was a lot to like about it, but it was shy on jokes. So yeah, we go now to Leon Redbone again, and he's again joined by Jonathan Dorn on tuba. And he sings the Irving Berlin song, uh, without my walking stick. This was super high energy for Leon. This is kind of like, this is as, as, as animated as it gets. Uh, I enjoyed this. It's- I wish they'd reversed the orders of the songs. I like when they have the peppy song first and the low key song second, but uh, I guess popularity dictates perhaps the other one went first. I guess I don't have anything to add. I, I still enjoyed this uh, performance. I might have enjoyed it a little bit more than the last one, not being familiar with either song originally, uh, but I think I just liked the quicker tempo, but still good. And I appreciate that he changed his clothes. Yeah, quicker uh, quicker tempo to it. Like this is like Leon Redbone's uh, Sandstorm <laughs> or like, you know, this is his fastest he can possibly go, I believe. But I enjoyed yeah. it. It was a nice little change to it. It still had like very much A&W Bear themes to it, but that's just the way he sounds. Overall, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, as we were discussing him before. It's The presentation they do for him is much more enjoyable for me than what they do for, you know, some of the other bands that, like, I think it was what Phoebe Snow, who was on before, and even, like, uh, Horton Collins, who's coming up, where it just, they're just standing there performing. Like, I like the fact he's sitting there. It's dark. He's got the, you know, he's got 
the very unique look. It's a very good presentation where even if you don't like his music, it is something where you'd at least if you're walking by a TV and it's on, you'd be like, what's this? So yeah, no, another another great one. I liked it a lot. So then we have, it's it's the third or fourth time we're seeing this commercial, Matt. Um, I think it's Chili's first. It's Mid-American Van Lines and it moves people instead of furniture. I've never been a fan of this one. You've liked it more each time we've seen it. Uh, and Chili, this is your first time. So what are we thinking about Mid-American Van Lines? Uh, it This this one, it, it burned out for me this time. I think I was just frustrated that I was seeing it again and wondering what, what, what was with the reruns. I don't like when they do so many reruns. So this time I was just like, ah, it's this again. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. I didn't find it funny. I didn't know that it was a rerun. Um, I wonder how much of it might dictate how much I enjoy it based on how much the audience laughs. And I assume if you're in the audience for SNL in 1975, you probably would have watched the episodes leading up to it. So the live audience may have seen this ad three times and that's why they're not laughing, but I didn't find this funny at all. Our next segment is a musical performance by Harlan Collins and Joyce Everson. So just quick bios on these folks. Harlan Collins is a composer, writer, uh, musician, obviously. And he has a popular daily syndicated column called The Daily Chuckle, which was started by his father, Tom. He's composed and arranged music for a lot of TV and film, and he's written some musicals and operas as well. Joyce Eberson was a folk musician from Minnesota. Uh, her sole release that I could find was in 1972's called Crazy Love. And she'd recorded with John Baldry in his version of Only Love Can Break Your Heart. Now, at this point in time, they were a couple. And they had some uh, social connection to Chevy Chase. And according to Everson, he, uh, he set them up with this appearance. Yeah, so they sing, I think it's called That's the Way It Goes. The song was okay. She had a, a very nice voice. I didn't get big star vibes from these guys. Uh, maybe that's retrospect, knowing that they weren't big stars. But uh, yeah, no, this was a, like a nice little tune, but there was nothing nothing that said to me, these guys have to be on Saturday Night Live. It's like when your mom says, we have the Carpenters at home. There doesn't need to be another musical guest this episode. This is ill-advised. Chevy has too much pull. Poorly thought out. Shouldn't shouldn't be this much music on an episode. I don't know why they would have two separate musical guests. You know, I understand it's the first season. They're working stuff out. But I think even by now, they should realize, let's focus on what we, you know, let's focus on one, especially when you have the the actual guests hosts doing musical numbers as well. Yeah, no, there's just something about his face. He reminded me like, you can just tell he really must have gotten into like karate and cocaine in the eighties. He just had one of those faces and it, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Like I just picture wearing Zubaz and like, he spent like the next 10 years, like getting jacked up, but doing Coke all the time. He loved the eighties. There's no way he didn't. Uh, I mean, he may have, I, I think you're way off. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> But I, I don't know. It's just the music. It wasn't. It did nothing. Not my cup of tea. The next segment is the goodbyes. And everyone comes out dressed as cowgirls. Uh, and Dan Aykroyd is there. And Garrett Morris is there as well on time. And they sing the old Roy Rogers tune, Happy Trails. And the audience joins in. Uh, Elliot Gould's announced that they're going on a big vacation. Uh, it's going to be reruns for the next few weeks. Now, this was technically kind of originally supposed to be the end of the season. So, and they threw a couple more over, uh, that we're going to see that occurred over the summer. So, yeah, that was an interesting goodbye. How did that work for uh, for you fellas? I liked it. It was something different. Uh, I liked the fact that they were all out there. And even 
when they panned out and even all the guys were dressed as cowgirls with the long skirts, I had a good laugh at it. So compared to some of the other you know, goodbyes I've seen, it's by far my favorite because it was something to look at, something to chuckle at, and the audience getting involved in the singing as well. It was, it was a fun way to end the show. Uh, I didn't like it. I have been hard on the music this whole episode. I will continue here. Enough with the musical gags and numbers. You know, they're dressed up as cowgirls. I don't, it doesn't do anything for me. I, I was glad this ended. This, 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 I've had a rough time for this one. So let's jump into the epilogue here. So uh, Elliot Gould will be back in season two, as will Leon Redbone. As far as Collins and Everson, they don't come back. Collins is still doing, uh, well, he's doing the daily chuckle column. Um, and I, I could have read this wrong, but it looks like he actually got into the subtitle game doing uh, post-production subtitles. He did some music for things like uh, This is Spinal Tap and the Highlander TV show. Everson uh, went on to be a, a public school teacher in the Ontario public school system. It really seems like these two folks actually had pretty good lives that aren't the typical post-musical guest deal that we've read about thus far. So good for them. So uh, let's rate the music tonight. For me, Leon, you can't go wrong with Leon Redbone. Harvest Moon is one of my favorite versions of one of my favorite songs that he does. Walking Stick is a fun song I wasn't super familiar with. Great to see Jonathan Dorn on tuba again and uh, really giving the tuba a chance to shine. Uh, as far as uh, Collins and Everson, it didn't offend me. It wasn't miserable, but there was nothing special there. I don't think I have to go into too much detail. There was excessive this episode. Uh, Leon Redbone's fine. I enjoyed the performances uh, on television. That third extra performance was garbage. I hated the monologue. I did not like the goodbye. Too much music on this episode, and certainly not a hell of a lot of music I enjoyed. Yeah, I give Leon Redbone like an A, A+. I enjoyed it a lot, like his two bits. I do agree with Matt. Like the, They did rely too much on music in this episode. As far as the other musical guests, I mean, I'm glad they're living good lives. Like I guess it's <laughs> probably the nicest thing I can say, because they're just put in a bad spot. I don't know why they would book. Even if you are going to book another musical guest, why would you book someone and then put them on literally two minutes after your main guest, your main musical guest? It makes no sense. But it was, you know, Leon Redbone brought it all up. I would say we're getting into Christmas season now at the time we're recording this. He does have a very nice version of Baby It's Cold Outside with uh, Zoe Deschanel. I would recommend adding to your list if that's a song that you're still happy listening to. That's from Elf, isn't it? I, I assume it's got to be because that's what they're both in it. But I don't think it's in the actual movie itself. So let's rate Elliot Gould. For me, he's he's still great. He gels here. Um He may have been a little bit more buttoned down on this one than he was the last time. Considering the sketches he appeared in, it worked. I thought he was pretty uh, pretty good with what they gave him. He didn't have any spots to shine, I don't think. I mean, the poker sketch, he was sort of the straight man, I guess we'll say, between the other two. Yeah, he didn't do anything spectacular, but he also didn't stand out in a bad way either, which <laughs> for the episodes I've watched for this show is pretty good. It's a he's above water. Yeah, he milled it well. I definitely I didn't like this surprise as much as uh, his first episode. Uh, this one was much more of a chore for me. I don't think he stood out as a star the way he did in the first episode, which uh, you kind of already referred to with uh, his reservation. And uh, I don't know, he just seemed like a competent cast member this time, which is, you know, something you want out of a host shortly sometimes. But uh, I think I think he was lacking star power this round, uh, despite 
what I'm sure um, I'm sure many enjoyed the monologue. Pretty pretty flat for me. Okay, and uh, Chili or Matt, either one is. What was the worst segment of the night for you guys? For me, I was going to go with Mid American Van Lines and the telephone operator bits, but at least they were short. And I mean, knowing that they're replays, there might be some. You know, maybe there's a timing issue with one of the sketches they may have had to cut or something. So that's what they had to put them in for. I'm going to give the worst bit overall to Weekend Update, despite having a pretty decent start. And this is actually ignoring the Vibromatic ad in the middle, which I actually did find quite funny. The Chevy bit of Weekend Update, it was no real big jokes. Chevy came off more annoying than likable. I'd say definitely the worst part of what was overall a pretty stellar night. Uh, my, my least favorite moments of the show were musical. And, and by that, I mean the Walmart Carpenters. But aside from that, uh, my least favorite sketch of the night uh, was the Honeymooners bit. And uh, I'm willing to concede that that just might be because I have a disconnect from that show anyway. But uh, gosh, it was sure long. And, you know, I, I get that it it looked aesthetically like the show and there was great production design involved in it. But I, I sat through it because I had to. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, for me, it was the uh, there was a lot of good stuff on this. This was actually hard for me. Um, there was too much music and a lot of re-airings. And, but what I, I went with on this was the, uh, the National Uvial Association. I just don't understand why that was changed. It, it took too much from another sketch and presented it as a new sketch. And I really don't like that. The other thing I was considering was the, the poker game, which really fell flat with me. But, uh, but I went with the Uvial a bit. I just don't like that rehash. So what was the best part, gentlemen? Star Trek. Loved Star Trek. Thought the impressions were great, except for McCoy. Loved the crowd whooping it up. I, it was giving me Star Trek fever all these years later. I'll give the best segment to the Muppets for not being there. But then I guess second place in the real option would be, I like the Shirley Temple sketch is what I'm giving it to the number one. Uh, like I said, start off making me nervous, but Lorraine was great. I was glad to see Garrett playing something other than a butler or a sidekick. I'm, I'm not sure if Warlord's that much of a step up, but you know he got to show... A bit more skills. The dancing was fun at the end. Yeah, that's for me, it was an overall one of my favorite sketches I've watched this season. Yeah, I went with Star Trek as well. Um, I just think it's far too iconic. It really woke the audience up. The impressions were, were great. Uh, McCoy was a little dodgy. Set was awesome. Costumes. I was just really happy with that sketch top to bottom. Star of the Night, uh, Chili. I'm giving Star of the Night with uh, Actually, legit, very serious shout out to the actual set and production designers. But I would give overall the star of the night to Lorraine Newman. Everything she did was very good. She was good in the Vibromatic ad. Uh, I really enjoyed her Shirley Temple. She was even good in the uh, Uvula ad. And she was actually very pretty as Joan of Arc. Like growing up, even now, like it didn't really occur to me that Lorraine Newman's actually a very attractive woman too. So that is a nice uh, plus. I think it's just, I don't like the 1970s hair, but overall, no, I'd give her star of the night. She's good in everything she did. With great distinction and honor, I would give star of the night to Dan Aykroyd. I thought he was uh, very honorable in the gambling sketch. Uh, his Scotty was spot on, very honorable indeed. And of course his pitch man is always a winner with me. So other than his dodgy McCoy, he went three for three. I also went with Lorraine Newman. Uh, everything Chili said is pretty much what I got here. She uh, she did great. Very good diversity. Definitely thought she was the best of the statues too. So overall, there was not really any duds tonight. A bit too much music. Ghana was a bit sloppy at the beginning. 
update was okay. The Uvula business pissed me off. It's too much. Um, Trek was great. Leon was awesome. Collins and Everson were neither terrible or great enough to change anything. Weiss film was a definite step up. No Muppets, about three seconds of Emily Lutella. Nothing really had me too much in stitches beyond the Gary Weiss film, but this was a really solid, good episode. I, I really kind of enjoyed this uh, top to bottom. Um, so I gave this one a 7.5 out of 10. I don't think I'm ever going to get close to anywhere near a 10 for these episodes. Just SNL is not yet what I think of SNL. There's still too many growing pains going on, but I'm going to give this a pretty solid, I'll give this one a seven out of 10. Uh, there was no real stinkers and there's some people did some really good work. The host was good. I enjoyed the Leon Redbone part of the musical. So nothing super stellar that stood out, but certainly no dud. So, uh, I'm starting to think you no longer hate me cause I enjoyed this episode and yeah, seven out of 10. This episode was significantly more painful for me than it was for you gentlemen. I didn't love the cold open. I thought the jeans were distracting. I thought the monologue was wretched. Too many reruns, way too much music. One of the musical guests being very bad. Weekend update being sub-average at best. And a honeymooner sketch that I don't connect with at all. That leaves me with some pretty slim pickings of uh, the gambling sketch and the Shirley Temple bit, which uh, I just thought was fun. I, it didn't knock me out or anything. And then I'm just kind of, you know, and we had Star Trek, which I love, but I mean, how much can one sketch carry a show? Uh, well, for me, it didn't carry it very far. I give this episode a 4.5 out of 10. So our uh, our average, that's me with a 7.5, Chili with a 7, Matt with a 4.5. Uh, we average out at 6.3. The Internet Movie Database is at 7.8, which again is at our 1.5 exchange rate, which is friggin' hilarious. So this episode was uh, finished the second best of the year, just behind the Richard Pryor, as far as the IMDb fans are concerned. Considered the 62, 62nd best of all time. And on their big list of uh, the best episodes they have from Stacker, gave it the 32nd best episode of, of, of the time. So people really, uh, really seem to be higher on this than even Chili and I are. That's yeah. very surprising considering there was nothing like nothing iconic. I suppose the Star Trek maybe, but yeah, I'm surprised this one's held as high as it was. Yeah. These, those numbers are atrocious. Those are criminal. That, this, that's way too high. For this episode, I mean, obviously, I just didn't enjoy it in general. Come on, that was like he. The, I think people. I have to assume that people chucking these ratings. Maybe they know Star Trek was on this episode. I, I don't think anybody's watching this and being like, "Wow, that was the second best episode of the first season." That was in the top fifty episodes of all time. Who the mm -hmm. fuck thinks that after watching this? Nobody. <laughs> I, I think this is Star Trek vote manipulation probably so and 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 the notion and and the the knowledge that elliot gould is seen as the great host yeah there's two more episodes left of season one and then matt and i are going to do a special season recap episode our, our next episode is a famous slash infamous episode with host louise lasser and musical guests the preservation hall jazz band and uh, this is a memorable episode to say the least Matt, how are you feeling about uh, getting into this wacky episode? I, I am dreading the Preservation Hall jazz band. I'm looking very much forward to them. To be to be honest, I think we're on complete, <laughs> we're on complete ends of the spectrum there. 
it's a bunch of old dudes with instruments. I mean, that's that's my that's my jam. So Chili, thank you so much uh, for. I enjoyed watching this one much more than the last two. So. Happy to be back anytime you need me. If you're listening in real time, Matt and I will be back in about a week with our uh, episode 23, Louise Lasser and the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. But until then, we'll be dancing around the duck pins here in Essen Hell. <laughs>